Good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis 3, we're going to be looking at 7 to 13 this evening. Again, thank you, Adam. And our children's choir, Regen, right? I'm still learning names. Joyful Noise, Regen's the youth that they sing as well. Uh, but you put the ball on the tee and, and then hit the ball. It was just a glorious, glorious time. From the mouth of babes, Scripture says, I will ordain praise. And uh, he is faithful to do that. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of this critical text, a very important passage. Really, you see from this passage the DNA of sin that's established in every sinner and in every sinful relationship. That's why this passage is so important for us. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you uh, that we can cry out, Lord, I need you. I need you. And we know that you hear us, not because of our inherent merit, but because of the merit of the Son of God who's gone before us. Father, thank you for teaching us from Genesis 3. We pray that I would faithfully expound that tonight in the power of the Holy Spirit, and your people would hear it uh, with ears tuned in to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the fall of 2009, I was driving down to Knoxville every Monday uh, to teach at the Extension Center for Southern Seminary there. And, and so I was gone a lot, and so Heather was having to do a lot of one parent parenting, and on one of these particular nights, uh, she had put the kids down, and they had been down about an hour. Now, about a month earlier, Nate and Seth had moved from individual rooms to share a room, which means that you have two centers in a room versus one. And so one hour in, after putting them down, she started hearing noise upstairs. And so she went up there, and the lights were off. Everything was still, but she knew something was up. And then she noticed their closet door was closed, but she could see light from under the door. And so she walks over there, and she opens the door, and... Nate, who's five, and Seth, who was three, look up at her because they knew they were supposed to be in bed. They were reading a book together. I think it was the last book they read. Um, <laughs> and Nate looks up at Heather and says, we're scared of you. And he should have been. <laughs> he was guilty before Heather, and he knew it. And their hiding was the evidence of that. But that's not new with Nate nor Seth. It's the way all of us have been since Genesis 3. It's why unbelievers generally are uncomfortable in corporate worship. And unbelievers should always feel welcome and loved, but uncomfortable in corporate worship. 
and generally they are. It's often the case why they are uncomfortable around godly people. They should feel loved, they should feel welcomed and embraced by godly people, but there's a sense in which they should feel uncomfortable. And it's also why believers who are in a season of unrepentance are absolutely miserable. They have too much God in them to enjoy the sin that they're seeking to enjoy, and they have too much sin in them to enjoy God. That's the human condition. Now, last time we saw how the first couple got into this. Uh, We see that Eve minimized, she supplemented and diminished the word of God. And so in rebellion to God's law, God's commandments, she took the fruit and ate it and gave the fruit to Adam. But as we're going to see, and as we see today, that even with Eve's transgression, the greater transgression lay with Adam. He had the greater culpability. Now, why do we say that? Well, God's word had originally been given to him before Eve was even created. And he was present with Eve when the serpent approached Eve because the serpent uses the second person, plural, you. So he is speaking to both of them, which speaks to Adam's passivity when he was called to lead and to protect And even with dominion over the animals, he was to cast the serpent out of the garden. He was to be the head of the home. And with their sin, immediately, they experienced the consequences of sin. Absolutely immediately. And the first thing we see here in verse 7, and we looked at this last week, the first couple were immediately alienated from, from God and from each other and they experience immediate guilt. Look with me in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, here's a remarkable irony. Remember, the serpent had said in verse 5, you will be like God knowing good and evil. The irony is that they make themselves like God in a very perverted and but real sense. They, they made themselves like God in the sense that they now know good and evil, but they will know it by their own insights, their own judgments, uh, apart from the authority of God. And now, all mankind that follow Adam and Eve... They determine good and bad based on fallen human sensibility rather than the objective truth of the Word of God. In that role, in that sense, they play a role like God, a perverted role. But there's also another ironic twist here. It gets to the heart of human irrationality. Sin is irrational, which is a consequence of alienation. The serpent, again, notice, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. But the remarkable twist is, now that their eyes are open, they did not like what they saw. And and this is going to raise a question. 
Hadn't they always been naked? That we saw that at the end of chapter two, the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. Are they only noticing it now? Or did they have some kind of clothing before that they no longer have now? Yes. They had a clothing of original righteousness. That was the clothing that covered them, that protected them from looking at each other in any kind of perverted or uh, horrified sense. Adam and Eve had lost their clothing because they were no longer able to wear it. Original righteousness. We're not born with original righteousness. It was lost in Adam and Eve. But they were created with original righteousness. But now, their purity, their innocence is gone. They were, for the first time, naked in the sense of being under judgment. And we saw that that word there last uh, week... um, In verse 7 is a word that's used elsewhere that speaks of nakedness in the sense of being under the wrath and the judgment of God. God had said in chapter 2 verse 17 to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They have died. They are dead spiritually. And eventually they will die physically. They begin dying physically, but they may not see it initially. But they have died spiritually. One of the most heinous aspects of death is this, or sin, it is death. Another word for that is alienation or separation. So think about, there is kind of like a fourfold alienation that comes with sin. First and foremost, we are alienated from God. The fruit of that, we are alienated from each other. That's why we, it's easier to fight than to get along. We are alienated from ourselves. That's why we have mental issues and emotional and psychological issues. And we are alienated from the created order itself, the very order in which we were given dominion. That's why creation fights back. That's why when you go to work tomorrow, even though work is a creation mandate... It has thorns attached to it. We'll see that next time. The created order fights back. So there's a fourfold alienation. And it's it's devastating to the first couple. They were alienated because they had lost their original righteousness that covered them. And in this state, they're not only alienated and, and guilty, they are alienated and shamed. Look with me in verse 8. And they heard the sound of Yahweh Adonai, Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, Isn't God omnipresent? That is, isn't he everywhere? We learned that in children's catechism class, don't we? God is everywhere, yes. But there's a sense in which God in the scripture is uniquely present in his sanctuary, if you will. Uh, Shekinah presence, his special revelatory presence. We see it here. 
We'll see it in the tabernacle as he dwells in the um, Holy of Holies. We'll see it in the temple as he dwells in the Holy of Holies. We see it in Jesus who tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. We also see it in Christ's church, which is the temple of the living God. God is uniquely present with God's people. That's why individual worship does not replace corporate worship. God is uniquely present when God's people gather. That's why he inhabits the praises of his people. And so there's a sense in which God is uniquely present, and he noticed the language here. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, This is attributing human-like qualities to God for our benefit so that we can understand something what's going on. Um, This is his earthly palace. Uh, Of course, we know that God is a spirit, so what's going on here? I, I tend to think this is a, let me give you a fancy term, some of you know it, some of you might not know it, a Christophany, which essentially means this is a pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. He is the sent one, and even under the old covenant, and even before the old covenant, I believe he was sent to prepare God's people for the day when he would come ultimately in the flesh. So I believe this is a Christophany. Of course, we see this through uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to see this throughout. For instance, the Lord's going to appear to Hagar uh, in chapter 16. He's going to appear to Abraham in chapter 17 and 18. He's going to appear to Isaac in chapter 26. And he's going to appear to Jacob in chapters 28, chapter 32, and chapter 35. Now, what does this mean when it says that Uh, He was walking, um, and they hid themselves from the presence of God. Well, again, they're stripped of this original righteousness, and so they no longer have that unique presence of God. This is a picture of alienation. They are separated from him. As well, notice in the second part of verse 8, It says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, in light of God's greatness of his person and in light of his goodness, and he is good, we saw that in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, they should have been glad to be in his presence. It's kind of like uh, your children, when you come home and you get out of the car and they are there to, well, your preteen children, um, <laughs> they are there to greet you because they, they're so happy to see dad or, or mom is home. They've missed you. And, and, and there's a sense of, of happiness and joy. That should have been the case here because that's the way God had created things to be. God is good. God has created his image bearers to enjoy him. But that's not what we see. Instead, what we see is dread. We see dread. They hid themselves in the trees. And this is important. Throughout the book of Genesis, and especially in this creation account, the trees play a central role in depicting man's relationship to God. So, for instance... In chapters 1 and 2, the fruit trees are the sign of God's provision, the sign of God's goodness. 
He is provider for his image bearers. Chapter 3, uh, the tree becomes the grounds for inciting human rebellion and the place where the rebellious hid. Finally, when they are cast out of the garden, we'll see this in verse 24, their way is barred from the tree of life, which we'll see will be a mercy. Because if they had access to the tree of life in a fallen state, it would have meant they would have spent eternity in a fallen state. And so that's a mercy that their lives are barred from the tree of light in their fallen state. But the full sense of this, this idea of the trees and the role of the plea, uh, trees is found that the tree was used as a tool for the punishment of sin. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 21, uh, 22, there, there were crimes that were punishable by death by being hung on a tree. Of course, we know Paul picks that up in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By being hung on a tree. He delivered us from the curse by becoming accursed for us. Now, that's the background here. The tree represents their posture towards God and God's provision for them for reconciliation. But at this point... For Adam and Eve, every action of life will be dictated by the need to overcoming their shame and their guilt. Even the most ardent atheist has this sense of trying to overcome their shame and their guilt. They may not be able to explain why they have shame. They may not be able to explain why they have guilt in their heart. But every action is an act of trying to overcome shame and guilt. And apart from the grace of God, apart from God's provision in Jesus Christ, there's no overcoming our shame. There's no overcoming our guilt. In fact, you see that in the frantic um, search for human approval. That is something that most of us struggle with. We have in us this desire to be approved of other people, which is the height of insanity because we're seeking approval who need approval themselves. Adam and Eve here are hiding and they're trying to deal with their guilt by sowing fig leaves and making themselves loincloths, but they can't. And the seeking God essentially cannot be hid from them. Notice in verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So they're hiding behind a tree, and they have covered themselves with fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. And there's so many ways we try to do that. Uh, we have people who, who think that they can deal with this guilt and this shame by, by certain kinds of works of merit or, or even going to church or church membership or, or baptism um, things like that. We think we can deal with our shame by doing these human acts of human works that we think will cover our natural guilt and shame. Well, we see it with Adam and Eve. And notice, God is not impressed. He says, where are you? What they've done has not brought reconciliation. 
They've hid behind the tree. They've covered themselves up. And there's no reconciliation. There's no reconciliation with God. There's no reconciliation with each other. And God sought them. Notice, they didn't seek God. In the natural state, sinful men, sinful women do not seek God. Paul says that in Romans 3. There's none who seeks after God. In fact, the only seeker in the scripture is Jesus himself who came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what we see here. God is seeking them. And they hid, but he found them. And notice who he addresses first. He addresses not the one who identifies as a man. He addresses the man. God sees two genders. And that's intentional here. And Adam's response contains no admission of wrongdoing. Let me say this. Why does he address the man? It's not because men are superior to women. They're not. We're equal as image bearers. It's because God established an order in the Garden of Eden. It's an order he established not based on, on worth or dignity. Women have all the dignity and worth as men do. They're as important to, in the economy of God as men are. But when he created Adam first, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, God was making a theological point. Adam was to be the leader. And the greater accountability would fall on him. And so he comes to him. Where are you, Adam? And here we see another consequence of this alienation. Fear. Fear. Look in verse 10. Now notice, there's a lot of first in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. These are the first words spoken by a sinner. The first words uttered by a sinner are found in verse 10. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Now, he was afraid. Doesn't the scripture teach us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? Yes, there is a healthy fear. It's a familial fear. It it can be approximated roughly. When a son or daughter has a healthy relationship with their, their parents, their father, you, you, you love them, you revere them, you feel safe in their presence, but there's a sense in which you do not and you will not cross them. First and foremost, not because of the consequences, but because you love them. That's a familial fear. That's not the fear here. This is a servile fear. This is someone who is fearful that the hammer is going to fall because they know they deserve the hammer. And that's what we see. Now I want you to notice as well, he says, he focuses here on his nakedness. He said, I was naked. He doesn't say, I ate the forbidden fruit. What's the difference? He's thinking about the consequences rather than his culpability. I was naked. He's playing the victim here. As always the case with sin, the focus is on the self and the consequences of the sin. That's the servile fear that I'm talking about here. It's not on repentance. It's not on sorrow for sin. Uh, We would have hoped that Adam would have said, Lord, I have sinned against you. 
and I turn from my sin. No, he is fixated on the consequences. The question of God here, or from God, is, is, is revealing. In fact, the question is going to expose another consequence of their alienation, blame gaming. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's how I outline it. Alienation and blame gaming. So there's guilt, there's shame, there is unhealthy, servile fear, and now we see blame gaming as a consequence of the sin. Notice in verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now again, let's remind ourselves from last week, for those of you that weren't here, verse 7 says they were naked, but that's a different Hebrew word than the word in chapter 2, uh, 2 verse 25 when it says they were uh, naked and not ashamed. Different word. The word here has the sense of judgment. Who told you, essentially, that you were under judgment? Who told you that you were naked in this sense? Adam's response is very illuminating about the nature of sin. Look with me in verse 12. The man said, now listen, if you've ever done any marital counseling, you know this has not gone away. All right? I have never, let me just say this before I even get to it. I have never done counseling where the man sits in his chair and says, Pastor Brian, the problem is with me. And the wife goes, no, the problem is with me. I've never had that happen. Because if that had happened, they wouldn't be sitting there, right? Okay, listen to what Adam says. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You're talking about where did victim culture come from? It came from Adam. There's nothing new under the sun. The DNA of that, it right, started right here. It was formed right here. And so, here, Adam, in a very real sense, is like Satan, who had argued that a better God wouldn't have held anything from his people. Remember what the devil said to them? A better God. If God was really good, he wouldn't have held out. He wouldn't have forbidden you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here Adam implies that a better God wouldn't have given him that woman. That's a problem. That's seen in every counseling session. It's the woman you gave me. No, it's the husband you gave me. If you were good, you wouldn't have given me that spouse. Forgetting the fact that maybe, just maybe, you've got some issues. And that your spouse can't cause you to sin. Your spouse exposes the sin that's already there. Depravity is not just seen in fallen man's inability to, to stop sinning. It's really seen in a deeper way. In his propensity, his tendency for avoiding repentance. Repentance. 
we are really good at avoiding repentance. Now think about all of how this, this transpired. Adam looks upon his nakedness. He despises himself. He hides from God. He makes fig leaves. He, he's abdicated his leadership with Eve. In following his wife into sin, he has shirked all responsibility in following his wife and failing to take dominion over the serpent. And in anger, and with a juvenile display of anger at that, he blames his wife. And this must have pierced Eve's heart. Doesn't tell us that, but I can tell you it pierced her heart heart what was once joy in that relationship now resentment enter enters in bitterness and and her response to God's question at this point is also surprising you you think that she would have just looked at Adam and said you should have taken care of the serpent for me you should have stopped me instead notice verse 13 then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done and the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate so she is both self-condemning and at the same time self-excusing in this response, I did it, but I wouldn't have had it not been for the serpent. Her shame, and I think we're going to see this played out for the rest of fallen history, leads her to try to recapture the man's love by accepting the blame in some kind of perverted way and shifting responsibility. She shifted the responsibility onto the serpent. And so this exchange here, Adam and Eve's exchange, establishes, I think, the general broad foundation of the enduring dilemma of male-female relationships. And so the man, from here on out, will somehow be fighting to recapture his manhood and restore the admiration that he had from Eve that was lost by his sin and passivity. And that's why men, we go out on Thursday nights to evangelize, they're on the prowl. They're looking to to establish their manhood that's been lost by conquering some girl that he finds. And the girl, on the other hand, shall forever be trying to recapture the man's joy of her presence. And both do it in a way that's unmediated. And it only costs and creates more havoc. It sends them deeper and deeper into the sin cycle. And we see it played out in marriage as well. Note, Adam blamed Eve Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent blamed God. And ultimately, at the end of the day, everyone blamed God. Everyone 
is blaming God for what they did. And you know, we often unwittingly blame God uh, when we behave in a negative way in less than optimal circumstances. So I taught college students for 15 years, and boy, I heard some good excuses. Um, student cheats or the student fails to turn in a paper and they blame the fact that they're too busy. Their parents couldn't pay for their school. They have to work. And, and that's why they cheated. They didn't have time to study. Or maybe you're just too difficult a professor. You assign too much work for us. I've got other classes as well. Or some thieves will, will blame their circumstances. Uh, uh, I had an unfortunate financial setback. Uh, we, we're living uh, in a very difficult time right now. All the prices, have you noticed the, ga the gas prices? I had to do something. How about adulterers? Oh, my. Adulterers are filled with excuses. Well, if you only knew what I had to go through at home. I saw it patterned. My mom, my, my mom or my dad was an adulterer. That, that's my normal. We're all filled with excuses. And Adam and Eve were the original blame gamers. They were the original victims. Today, it goes something like this. Well, um, it's my genes. Uh, I inherited them from my parents. It's my upbringing, my abuse that I experienced. I had terrible parents. I had inept parents. They didn't teach me anything. They didn't take me to church. It's my spouse or it's a, an oppressive group in society that I can't overcome. I, one of my favorite examples of this, well, it makes me cringe, but you remember the Menendez brothers who killed their parents and they threw themselves on the mercy of the court because they were orphans. Insane. Why were they orphans? They killed their parents. And so, as we think about this situation, it is clear alienation has occurred. Death has set in. The wonder, the amazement of living in the presence of God, living in the garden of God, the, the awe and the amazement of marriage, it's gone. It's gone. Their understanding of God is their benevolent provider and creator is gone. They may not experience immediate death physically, but it's happening, it's occurring. And the proof of that is they begin to age and they live in a way that is characterized by alienation and separation from each other. Here's the question. I'm not leaving you with any hope in verse 13. Is there any hope? From a natural sense, no. If, if you don't have the gospel, there is no hope. Next week, we'll see the answer. But for now, the full answer will not come for thousands of years. I don't know how many thousands of years, but just a few thousands of years later... We get the answer. And here's how Paul describes that answer in Romans 5, 17. For if because of 
One man's trespass, notice Adam and Eve sinned, but the sin entered the world through Adam. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is the answer. There's the answer to every sinner. That's the answer to every marriage. That's the answer to every human relationship. Our last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the one man in history who never tried to pass the buck, who never tried to blame game. Why? Because as a sinless man, he never needed to. He fulfilled all righteousness. As our sinless man for us, the God-man, he did say, though, pass the blame to me. That's what happened at the cross. Our sin, our blame, was imputed, was credited to him. And his righteousness was credited to us. And he was raised signaling that transaction has taken place. The sweet exchange has taken place for everyone who would trust in him rather than in themselves. And that, I believe, is why Paul picks up the language of being clothed in righteousness. We lost our clothing in Adam. But now we are clothed in a new righteousness the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he is our righteousness from God. And now in Jesus, we still hide. We still hide, but not from God. We hide ourselves in thee. You ought to write a song with those lyrics. Indeed, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, verse 3. That is a truth for every believer. But as Adam comes and the musicians come, it's not a truth for every person. It's only a truth for every believer. Until you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, until you receive what he did for sinners, in judging our sin or being judged for our sin as our substitute, all the earmarks of sin that you see with Adam and Eve are true of you even now. Guilty, shameful, playing the blame game, fearing God not in a familial way but in a servile way, that is what characterizes your life and it doesn't have to. That's the good news of the gospel. Flee to Christ. Have your sins forgiven. Have a new righteousness imputed and then infused in you by the Spirit. That is the hope for every person here tonight as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors.
And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.